Hi, this is Chad. I'm so glad to be part of your experience moving towards product mastery so that we could actually develop products that our customers love and do a better job with that. This episode is sponsored by the Rapid Product Mastery Experience, the RPM Experience, which is the fastest way for product VPs to help their product managers and everyone else contributing to products as well to increase performance. It's not training like you're used to. It is a unique experience. Go to productmasterynow.com slash RPM to see how it can help you as well. Now, most of us in our journey to being product managers and then moving on into leadership positions, or you may move on to those leadership positions in the future, and that's based on our experiences and our knowledge. And we also encounter some tools along the way, some that are more helpful than others at times. And I want to use this time, this discussion, to talk about experiences that really stood out to maybe help move forward in our careers and maybe some tools along the way as well. And joining us to help us with that is Tom Liang. He is the Director of Product Management at Google Health and previously at YouTube. He also hosts the Fireside Product Management Podcast, which hopefully we'll talk about a little bit towards the end of our time here. As a reminder, listeners, if you want a detailed copy of everything we talk about written out for you, we do take detailed notes for you. We also prepare a one-page action guide to help you put into action immediately the key takeaways that Tom will be discussing with us as well. You'll find those resources at productmasterynow.com slash 390. Tom, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me on, Chad. I'm delighted to be talking. I love journey stories about people's experiences. And you have such a great background and rich experiences, both in some startups and then large organizations and product management, moving into uh, several leadership roles. And want to get a sense of kind of what stood out in that experience to you. But first, give us kind of the background story. How did you end up in product? Yeah, well, I've always been a tinkerer and I loved building things as a kid. I spent a lot of, uh, you know, money from mowing lawns and stuff on radio controlled cars. And I think I've just always enjoyed having, seeing something in my mind and then trying to build it and then kind of iterate on it. So in some ways it's been part of me for a long time, but my early career was, you know, I got my undergraduate degree in liberal arts in history and economics and then went into management consulting. And I thought at that point that I was going to be, you know, like a business leader, but I didn't really know about product management. The closest thing I was interested in was actually brand management at a, like a PNG or something, which, you know, was like thought of as a mini CEO job at the time. And then I went to business school and I got bit by the tech bug in 1999 doing a startup with my brother in Singapore. And it was, you know, obviously <clears throat> we were the victims of not only the dot-com crash in 2000, but also a, a multitude of founder kind of mistakes. And then, but since then was in, in tech. And after b finishing my MBA, I went to Microsoft. But in that case, I started out in business development and I was negotiating a lot of deals between third-party tech companies and Microsoft. And I just realized that like as, as interesting as the partnership work was, I was most excited talking about like, well, what will this unified solution look like? And how will we, you know, what will the customer experience look like? And so then I made the switch to product management in 2004, maybe around there and never left since then. I've always been in product. The only time I haven't been in product since then was as a CEO of a startup and started a couple of businesses along the way. But uh, yeah, the switch to product management, 
I think the main driver was if you want to kind of connect the dots and be as close to kind of running things as you can in matrix organizations, the PM role, you know, is as close as that will get, you know, for you. So maybe part of it is control or accountability or desire for a wide breadth of problems to solve. I think with that comes a lot of ability to have influence. You get to see the big picture. You get to kind of guide and direct and have some influence over that. The mini CEO role that people often associate with product management doesn't play out in reality for a lot of people. They just don't envision it the way when they hear that, right? It's like, oh, I can be the mini CEO. Right. Because the reality is you have lots of responsibility, accountability, as you said, no actual authority, right? And so it's using that mm-hmm. influence But I do like being in that position where we often do get to see the big picture much more than others in the organization. Yeah, I've noticed that actually in some of conversations I've had with other product leaders that that they didn't realize this, but the mini CEO framing seems to have come out of favor. And I understand your point that, you know, you don't have the control that a CEO would. But I also feel like, you know, even the CEO doesn't have full control. Like they have a board and they have employees that have other options. Maybe the way I think about it is, let's say you're working on a product in a matrix org and you're interested in marketing and sales and PR and engineering and security and operations. Like only very few other people in the team other than the PM have license to kind of get involved in the, all those things and have a real strong influence in those things. Right. And almost veto power. And, you know, whereas if I were, you know, in a different function, they would be like, well, why, well, you're in deployment. Like, why are you asking all these questions about, you know, marketing? So maybe the, that PM role gives you this kind of like visa to operate in other countries, you know, in, in other function that others wouldn't. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I think just the way I was wired and the way I think about business, I inherently approach it as a systems problem, you know, mm-hmm. and that all these things to come together. And it was actually a little shocking to me when I first heard that comment about, well, why aren't you just staying in your lane? Why do you care about what's going on over there? Mm-hmm. Like, well, all the pieces have to come together to be successful, which suits me really well, as you just said, right? From the product perspective, you get to be very cross-functional yeah. and you have the license to, to do it, right? People expect that as well. Yeah, it just reminds me of a conversation I had with a previous manager a few years ago. And I was like, hey, you know, I've been in product for a long time. And I'm definitely, they're always learning on how I can do better. But I also wonder like what it would be like to take on a marketing leadership role or a leadership role in a different function, you know, at the company. And he said, well, you could do that. But the benefit of being a PM is like, you can just start driving some big marketing initiatives as a PM lead and no one's really going to push back. And, you know, that, so like, do you really need to change citizenship because you've got like the passport that opens up a lot of options for you? And I think that was like, reminds me of another, you know, example of how that PM role gives you maybe a lot of flexibility. And yeah, it's definitely something it's one of those roles that you could stay in for a long, long time in your career and still have a diversity of experiences yep. in all, even if the title looks the same. Yep. And I want to go back to some of your early experiences too. What I'd like to do to pull out in our conversation are maybe some key pivotal points in your experience that you look back on and you said, wow, 
that was really valuable to help me where I am now or where I got later, right? Those times where you you look back and go, gosh, that provided a lot of growth to me. Is there one that stands out that might be earlier in your career? You know, the failures definitely always are punctuated in my memory. And I think that startup I did in 99 with my brother actually was a great example of someone who had a few years in consulting. And uh, at that time I was enrolled at at Harvard Business School and yeah thought I was kind of, you know, hot stuff. And you learn the hard way how hard <laughs> businesses are to create. And part of the reason part of the one of the many reasons we failed was, you know, ultimately I don't think our product really solved a big enough problem for customers. It had identified a problem, but it wasn't really solving it sufficiently well. And I was actually just speaking to a group yesterday and they were asking like, you know, what are some commonalities and things that you've learned as a PM in so many different areas? And I mentioned that like many of us constantly relearn that lesson because we get distracted or we get seduced by technology or we get seduced by the business opportunity or we get seduced by the desire to focus entirely on like internal execution or retaining talent or attracting talent. And for some reason, like we forget about the law of gravity, which is like you need to solve a problem that's a big problem for customers and you need to solve it 10 times better to really stand out. And, you know, it's amazing. Like you look at the history of all failed businesses, like many of them forget that lesson. Right. This is not my quote at all, but I often share and remind people that our in our role, we need to fall in love with the problem, not with our solution. We'll be back in just a minute. This podcast is sponsored by the RPM Experience, the Rapid Product Mastery Experience. In just nine weeks, meeting 75 minutes a week, product managers, teams, and leaders become product masters, creating more value for customers, their organization, and themselves. You will build a broad foundation of product management knowledge, get everyone on the same page, while also improving collaboration and renewing a focus on the customer, all resulting in higher performance. Participants feel empowered and more confident about their work. They learn how to create value for customers and revenue for their organization. One product leader who used the RPM experience across a global organization said it is the only training that provides an integrated product management perspective. It did exactly what I needed. Many organizations have benefited from the RPM experience, and you'll find them listed at productmasterynow.com RPM. Go to the same URL and schedule time to talk about how Chad and his team can help you and your organization. There were two things that you, you said that I want to tease out in that learning from that 1990-1999 experience. And you know, part of this was the environment, right? We had the dot-com bubble, yeah. and that just made it impossible for almost all startups to move through, right? There were a few that survived that had mm-hmm. good fit, but lots did not. You said it was a, a big enough of a problem and you weren't sufficiently solving it for customers, like maybe not adding you know, the right value to doing that 10x you just said. Yeah. Can you talk about both of those? Because they're kind of two different aspects, right? They are. I mean, the startup was, the idea was to provide a free streaming video service to consumers and then fund it with video ads that would be inserted into the middle of the videos. And I think the problem we were trying to solve was to provide consumers 
with a wider range of content choices so that they wouldn't be beholden to either the movie studios that, you know, had whatever they were showing in the theaters or on DVD or your cable TV channels, you know, however many there were. And so, I mean, now when we look at it, and I, you know, ironically later on worked at YouTube, I think that was the, a very real problem to solve. But the way we solved it was very transactional and maybe reflected that, you know, my brother was an investment banker, so he was very deal focused. And so we ended up trying to just license video content from, you know, independent filmmakers and syndicated content and then just aggregate it and kind of like a financial transaction, you know, like rolling up content and then providing it on a single portal at the time they were called. And, you know, it was decent, but you had very poor bandwidth for most consumers at that time, you know, dial up really. Right. And then the content was like not that great. And I, in, I still remember to this day, after we were getting going, some people were sending us content saying like, hey, I'm just like a film student. I, I want to put this up. Can I do it? And we were like, oh, no, we don't want that. That's just user generated trash. Like we want to license content from like big brands and whatever. And, you know, now in hindsight, it's like, well, wait a minute. Somebody was, people were willing to give you free content and it would have been very broad and you wouldn't have to really bet on any of these suppliers to be a winner. You could just benefit from this ecosystem. But at that time, you know, the general feeling was that user generated content wouldn't be brand appropriate and big kind of advertisers would never want to spend money on ads on, on, you know, showing ads next to content that wasn't really professionally developed. And so you live and you learn. What a great learning to later be at YouTube late, you know, as a product person as well, right? <laughs> I know. Gosh, how that so out. crazy. Yeah. yeah. That's the Wikipedia story too, right? It's like, we're going to start with our own curated content yeah. that we closely edit and then, uh, Finding yeah. out there's an opportunity to open that up and it worked better. So. Totally. That, and the, learning through those failures is so very important. That's a great example of something that, you know, you, you were in a pivotal position as a co-founder of the startup, but, but lots of learning there. So that was a bit ago. I, is there something that has come up more recently for you as maybe it, you've been in that leadership role helping product managers? You know, actually, so I spent four years at YouTube and I was very lucky to have an opportunity to lead a pretty broad effort there. We basically rebuilt the core creator experience and, you know, the creator platform, both for internal teams and also for the creators themselves to, to use to manage their channels and everything. And it was a solid kind of chapter in my career. But one of the things that I learned as I did some reflection was to acknowledge that I was a high performer there, but I was not one of the top three or four PM directors at YouTube at the time. And I thought to myself like, oh, you know, what can I learn from that? So I actually reached out to peers as well as my manager and my skip level. And I said, hey, look, like I had a great time at YouTube and I've landed in a really great place now, you know, in, Google research and working on AI and stuff. But I also know that I wasn't, you know, on the fastest of the fast tracks. Like I was getting great ratings, but I wasn't like getting superbs or anything like that. And why not? You know, and it was, it's great. People will give you great feedback if you ask for it. 
you know. And my, in fact, my skip level said, I'm so glad you're asking. So many people don't bother asking and it would be useful to them to know, for them to know. And so, like, I think it's great to have those conversations when you're, even when you're no longer in the reporting chain, because then they can really, like, you know, be, usually be as unvarnished as possible. And the theme I heard was people love working with you, but you also could have done a better job of forcing us to have harder conversations and making harder choices earlier. That there's a sense that you're very agreeable and you try and get everyone together but, you know, when a hard call is made and you look back, you probably could have made that call in a third of the time. And, you know, that's one of the things that, that we think separate, like, the amazing directors from the really strongly exceeding ones. Like, you know, that, that, and that was the category I was in. Okay. That's really helpful and good reflection to look back on. So two key things that stand out in there. One I'll ask you about in just a moment, but one is just that you asked for the feedback, right? And asking for the advice. And I recently saw a video from Dan Pink who talked about, and he has some research he presented, but his thing was, we actually do better asking for advice than we do feedback because I've asked for feedback often. And I thought about that, like, huh, people do struggle to give feedback, but they do seem to be more willing to give advice, which is interesting. Yeah. But you asking for it is really important and a great, I hope others listening take that to heart too. Yeah, maybe that's why they, it was, uh, it worked out well because I remember I said, hey, look, I'm, I've been lucky to land in a good spot and I'm doing like really well, but I also want to make sure I apply lessons learned from YouTube to my new role. So what can I do? And maybe that gave them the door so that they didn't feel like they were just criticizing me, but they're just trying to help me be Mm -hmm. more successful going forward. Yeah. Yeah, that's excellent. And then the other aspect of that was having those hard conversations earlier. How did you think about that to help you get better, right? Because this isn't just, you know, product people, we have the authority, we make the decision, we move everyone forward. There is collaboration that takes place too, right? We're trying to come up with the best idea. Well, yeah. So how did you implement this feedback? It's a hard one to implement because even if you want and are personally ready to make a hard call, most of us work in organizations where it's a, you know, often consensus driven or at least cross-functional and it's matrixed and there's different points of view. And some of these hard decisions have impact on different people. And so I think the trick, and it's something I'm still trying to master myself, is like, okay, when you know there's a hard call, how can you, A, socialize it effectively to make sure that the direction you're thinking of going, you know, you're not the victim of your own blind spots. And then secondly, how do you bring people along to make that call? And then thirdly, how do you help that organization officially make it together and make it stick and then do it in a way that's, you know, as uh, to minimize disruption? Because generally, if it's a hard call, there's got to be a reason for it. There's probably going to be parties that their interests are going to be impacted in a negative way, at least in the near term. And uh, that's delicate. Like, you can't just go in and kick the door open and say, oh, this project should be killed or... You know, that's a whole org that might have been working on something for a long time. On the other hand, like, if you go the other extreme, you don't want to be in a situation where two years later, that project gets deprecated and everybody 
knows that it should have been deprecated before. And I've seen this happen in many different roles, even including at YouTube, where, you know, things we wound down, it often happens when there's a new manager that comes in and it's like, well, what happened? Like the facts on the ground didn't change because we hired this new manager. It's because they didn't have any skin in that game and were willing to just say like, this project doesn't make sense anymore. And notice no one really pushed back hard which means that like the org kind of like was ready for this, but nobody wanted to like have that hard conversation. You know, it's, those are always tough because they, I think the main reason is they involve other people that you like, that you care about and you don't want to, you don't want to hurt their feelings. You don't want to harm their career progression. So there's always this tension. Really good insights to just look back on that too. And how do we bring people along? How do we collaborate? How do we make the hard decision in a way that minimizes disruption and get support for that. So good insights about things there. In our discussion, you've mentioned some characteristics of product people, ability to move things forward, to get others involved, to in some way have others feel like you're helping them. Yeah. I'm curious what you've, what, how you've thought about this. And as you are working with other product people as well, product managers, what kind of characteristics stand out that seem to be helpful for this? I think the first one would be the ability to build trust across the team in that PM's judgment and motivation and ability to execute. So credibility and trust building is crucial. I think the second thing, and they're kind of related, is the ability to really clearly communicate and distill complex things down into really bite-sized and kind of useful frameworks and approaches to solving a problem. And I think the third is a little bit of that mini CEO mentality of like, yes, you've got to write the roadmap and the PRDs and come up with the OKRs, but you're also going to be the one that's turning over rocks constantly, trying to do everything you can to make this product successful. And, you know, that could change one week. It could be making sure the go-to-market is really lined up. Another week, it could be you know, unpacking some key insights from customer research. Another week, it could be you know, improving alignment with some team that you have a dependency on. You know, those are the three characteristics that, that I think you know, are really important. The fourth one, which has come up in my conversations with other product leads, is curiosity. Mm that great PMs are always interested in learning and cons- like have this voracious appetite to, you know, to always be asking why and digging, you know, uh, as deep as they can. Yeah, it does serve us well to be that curious cat that continues on and tries to <laughs> keep, keep learning. Yeah. Absolutely. I've heard that when you talk about the turning over the rocks, right, the, the third one you addressed and always trying to get the, you know, the right thing done at the right time. Someone else expressed that once as good product managers are paranoid. They're always worried about wh- what they're missing and they keep trying to turn over rocks to figure that out. And when I first heard that, I'm like, well, I don't want to be paranoid, but I kind of see where you're going. Yeah. yeah wh- what do you think? I definitely took that approach for a lot of my career. And I think it is good to kind of constantly pressure test your plan, your assumptions, and always look for opportunities where there's like weak points in in the weak links in the chain. However, I would say like lately in the last few years, I tried to take more of a mindset of abundance and a mindset of 
you know, setting teams up for success. And it's not entirely different, but it is a different energy that comes with it. Like there's a difference between, hey, let's figure out everything that could go wrong with this product versus let's think of everything we can do to help this product get its maximum success. Right. The actual things you do might be very similar, but it changes the energy. And so I think that kind of paranoid approach can be effective, but I think it's also very taxing right. and it's not super inspiring either. It's always like, oh, well, how do we remember in working in a, in, you know, in a previous company where the mentality was, hey, well, what I don't want to happen is this escalating to the CEO and us having to explain blah, blah, blah. And when you think about that now, you're like, wow, this is a very kind of almost like defensive crouch we're in mm. versus saying like, hey, what I would love to happen is that we are in front of the CEO. We can talk about how all this went really well. How do we make that happen? Right. You know, and the actions again are similar, but the kind of mindset is very different. Yeah. And as you said, it's a very different kind of energy and that translates to the work environment and most of us would say, which one would we rather be in? Showing up, we're paranoid or showing up, we're, yeah. we're excited about contributing to what this thing could be. Totally. Yeah, appreciate that. Okay, as listeners know, we love a good innovation quote around here. I asked you to bring one and share what that means to you, if you would. I don't know if someone else came up with this quote, or but I've been, I said it to my kids a few years ago, and they said they still remember it, so... I said, hey, you can't, in the poker game of life, you can't control the cards that you're dealt, but you can control how you play them. And I like that quote because you can, in any life situation, including when you're trying to innovate a product, there are a lot of things that are outside of your control. And it's easy to spend a lot of energy fretting about those things that you can't control. Well, this other competitor has more funding or they have a head start or we've really, you know, the, in the past we struggled here or there. It's like, well, that's great. You can't control any of that. It's either in the past or it's outside of your, your reach. You know, you just can't influence that. So let's focus on what we can control. You know, what can we do right now to help this product be successful? And let's put our energy there. That is something that I think about often. Excellent. I like that quote, and I might share that one with my kids as well. <laughs> Make use of the situations that have been presented to you. So, the card you Yeah. Have. You know, if you get dealt a pair of sevens, like, don't spend time thinking about how you wish you had pocket aces. Like, you don't. Yeah. So, figure out, well, what do I need to look for these pocket sevens to be useful, you know, as the turns get, uh, as the cards get turned over on the flop. Very good. You're involved in several things, right, outside of just the work that you do there at Google. I would love to hear a little bit about your podcast, and it's another opportunity for product people to learn more. And you provide some coaching services. I'm sure you have some other resources available. Links that you share as you're talking about that, I'll make sure to show up in the show notes as well so listeners can find them easily. Thanks, Chad. Well, number one is in my day job at Google, we're always hiring great product managers. You know, most hiring at Google is done centrally. So you can just go to the Google career site and apply for a role there. Or if you know a Google employee, ask them to refer you. And then if you, when you get to the point after you're through the hiring committee and you go to the team matching process, if you're interested in learning more about what I'm doing at Google Health, then just say you'd like to be considered for a role on the Google Health team or say whatever that guy Tom Leung is working on. 
So that's, that'd be great. And then you're right. I have a very small kind of embryonic PM podcast called Fireside PM. And you can subscribe on the YouTube channel or find it wherever you listen to audio podcasts. And that's kind of like what Chad and I are doing here, except the roles are reversed. <laughs> Chad, I may have to have you on our on my show. I would love to. Uh, <laughs> I, I'm curious about the name. T- tell us where Fireside came from. At work, we often have fireside chats where you have like a VP or something and at all hands. And it's kind of like a laid back conversation like you're doing now. And it's like, it's not a presentation. It's more like two folks just having conversation. So I really like that. And that's the reason why, you know, I started with that name. And so they can subscribe to that podcast. And then I also do some career coaching and executive coaching as a kind of side kind of passion project. And they can learn about that at TomLeungCoaching.com. Excellent. And once again, listeners, I will put the links in the show notes. Fireside PM, easy to find on YouTube or firesidepm.co, I think, right? .co? Correct. Yeah. Good resources for us. Love helping the product management community have more resources from people that have good experience. And I appreciate you today sharing some of that experience with us, Tom. You bet. Thanks for having me, Chad. And once again, listeners, just remember, if you do want those written show notes of everything we've talked about, great way to share with your colleagues a summary of what we've discussed, as well as that one-page action guide to help you put into action some key takeaways from Tom, which is going to include seeking advice along the way of your career, most important for us as well. You'll find those resources at productmasterynow.com slash 390. Keep innovating. Thank you for listening to Product Mastery Now, where product leaders and managers gain product mastery through practical knowledge, influence, and confidence. By listening, you are becoming a product master, creating products customers love. Find additional resources at productmasterynow.com. Keep innovating.